from the enterprise team at Zoho, this is Business Unusual, the show about companies and their leaders who have achieved success by doing things their way. I'm Arun Srinivasan. And I'm Austin Reese. As your host, we'll be taking you through stories you've never heard, or stories you thought you knew, of entrepreneurs and business leaders who succeeded on their own terms, outside conventional business wisdom. Welcome back to another episode of Business Unusual. Uh, Today, we're going to profile somebody who has really impacted the women's apparel industry. And at first, we might think, Austin, you know, we maybe have never heard of this before because it's on the women's apparel side, but they've actually started to expand to the men's side. And even before that, I would would be willing to venture, you've probably heard of it. And the person I'm talking about is Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. Uh, yeah. Austin, have you have you heard of Spanx before? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely I've heard of Spanx. Not you know I haven't used them personally, but um, just being you know around, I think I've heard people talk about it, and I feel like it's become even a verb sometimes for yeah. like like putting it like something on. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really become sort of a trendy uh, item for, for women all over the world. And so what, if you don't know what Spanx are, Spanx are, uh, undergarments that women wear that sort of help contour the body in, in a flattering way. And nothing like this had ever existed until Sarah Blakely came, came around and and founded the company. So Spanx is an American intimate apparel company with, with pants and leggings founded in Atlanta, Georgia in the year 2000. So it's been around for a while. Yeah, it's been around for a while, although I think it's really only become very mainstream, you know, over the last uh, maybe 15, 10, 15 years or so. Yeah. In 2012, Blakely was named in Time Magazine's Time 100 annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. And as of this year, she has an estimated net worth of over $1.2 billion. Wow, that's um, it's incredible. Another, yeah, I mean, another billionaire uh, talking about another billionaire, and it's it's just really crazy. <laughs> right, right. And again, as we get into the story, you'll see it's it's not a, a case of anybody who had any you know unfair advantages. It's it's just another person, just like pretty much every other person we've profiled. Sarah Blakely was born on February twenty seventh, nineteen seventy one, in Clearwater, Florida. She graduated from Florida State University with a communications degree, and initially, she planned to become an attorney, but she reconsidered after scoring uh, very low on the LSAT like multiple times. So instead, she accepted a job at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, where she worked for three months while also moonlighting as, wait for it, a stand-up comedian. Wow. <laughs> it's uh what a path. I mean, it's it's kind of cool to hear how she took, you know, maybe the rejection or like the disappointment of not being able to do well on the LSAT and then turned it into a completely different career path uh, of comedy and working at uh Disney World. Yeah, and I, you know, who knows what her thought process was at the at that juncture in her life if she was, uh, you know, miserable or if she was just buying time to think of an, a new idea, but uh, it's certainly unconventional, and maybe we can. She could take some of the sort of interpersonal interactions that she was doing at Disney World and, and as a stand-up comedian, and maybe she that applied that to her interactions as far as raising money or building a company. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, a unheard of thing to 
people work in these jobs where they're, you know, interacting with a lot of people to learn those communication skills, how to talk to people. And then, you know, stand-up comedy, it's it's facing your fears, it's getting up, it's, you know, selling people a story and a lot of times. So yeah, all great character building and, and skill building career paths. Yeah. Now keeping that in mind, I'm sure that she didn't pursue those careers as a, as an opportunity to grow. She probably just needed uh, something to pay the bills. But the job did pay off, especially with her next job, which was she uh, joined an office supply company where she sold fax machines door to door. So obviously we're, we're dating her right here, you know, selling fax machines door to door. They're not, you know, a, I think door to door sales are pretty much out these days and, and certainly not fax machines, <laughs> but she was quite successful and she was promoted to national sales trainer at the age of 25. As part of her job, she was forced to wear pantyhose in the sort of hot Floridian climate for, you know, her door-to-door sales. And she really disliked the appearance of the seamed foot while wearing open-toed shoes, but liked the way the control top model eliminated like panty lines and made her body appear sort of firmer. So one day she was invited to a private party and before attending, she experimented by cutting off the feet of her pantyhose while wearing them under a new pair of slacks and found that the pantyhose continuously rolled up her legs. But she also achieved the desired you know, aesthetic result. So at age 27, Sarah relocated to Atlanta, Georgia. And while she was working at Danka, she spent two years and nearly $5,000 uh, in savings researching and developing her hosiery idea. She then drove to North Carolina, the location of most of America's hosiery mills, to present her idea. And as we've heard time and time again, she was turned away by nearly every representative. And as she said, these companies were used to dealing with established companies and did not see really the value of her idea. So two weeks after arriving home from her North Carolina trip, Blakely received a call from a male mill operator based in Asheboro, North Carolina, who offered to support Blakely's concept as he had received strong encouragement from his three daughters. So, okay. Um, I'm interested. How did the, the three daughters hear about it? Cause this is like pre-internet it's pre, you know, things like that. I'm just curious how the word got out. That's a great question. I, I have no idea how old his daughters were, but you know, it could have been something as simple as, Hey, we had this, this lady come in and present this idea or, or it could have been, Hey, we have uh, a lady coming in presenting this idea. Why don't you guys sit in and, and let me know what you think? I, I don't know how old the daughters were or what their involvement might have been in that decision, but uh, but we know that obviously it was the right one. Yeah. So the creation of the initial product prototype was completed over the course of a year. And Blakely used her credit card to purchase the Spanx trademark on the USPTO website for $150. And in 2000, she launched the company. Now, starting in the year 2000, again, she launched a company, but it was it was all about the hustle at that point. So she managed to arrange a meeting with a representative of the Neiman Marcus Group, at which point she changed into the product in the ladies' restroom in the presence of a Neiman Marcus buyer to prove the benefits of her innovation. So she, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm imagining this meeting saying, hey, stay here, I'll be right back, and uh, basically showing a before and after, you know, right in front of their eyes. And as a result, they picked up the product. So Blakely's product was sold in seven Neiman Marcus stores as a result of the meeting. Bloomingdale's, Saks, uh, Bergdorf, Goodman also followed in carrying her products. Yeah. And, you know, 
these stores, obviously a lot of them are still around, but I think it, you should like, we should just mention that, you know, during this time that these department stores were the place to be. So, you know, getting into Neiman Marcus was, was a big deal. Yeah, exactly. Neiman Marcus and, you know, as it, as it followed Bloomingdale, Saks, and these are all high-end companies too. So positioning your product in those places really appeals to that. You know, it's obviously not one of these essential items that, uh, that women need, but it does appeal to that sort of group that would shop there. So in November 2000, uh, Oprah Winfrey actually named Spanx as one of her quote unquote favorite things, which led to a significant rise in popularity and sales, as well as Blakely's resignation from Dunka to pursue Spanx full time. In 2001, Blakely signed a contract with QVC, the home shopping channel. And again, that furthered her her sales and her her reputation and really started, you know, between Oprah, between the presence in all these stores, and then obviously being on QBC, QVC, you know, Spanx became a very sort of trending name in the uh, women's undergarment industry. You know, it's cool to hear this story so far from from a time when, you know, there weren't, you know, Instagram influencers and there wasn't, you know, social media where we see such, you know, these modern brands really taking off and how they're marketing their products and getting their products into people's hands. It's really cool to hear these, you know, old ways of, of doing it, getting into department stores, getting on the QVC. And just, it takes me back to a time, uh, seems very far away from today, but it's nice to go back. Exactly. And even with, you know, presence in, in all these stores, QVC, you can see that Spanx has evolved. It's still, you know, a very, it's, it's still a very recognized name, which shows that she's, she's just continued to, to stay with the times, keep Spanx relevant and innovate on, on the idea that she initially had. I mentioned this earlier in 2012, she landed on the cover of Forbes magazine for being the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world. Now, if we think about that, it's interesting because in the last episode I hosted, uh, we profiled the current youngest self-made billionaire in the world, which is, which is Whitney Wolf Hurd, uh, the founder of Bumble. Uh, I don't know if she took the crown directly from Sarah Blakely of 2012, if there was somebody in between, but uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of girl power this season. Yeah. And even last season, we did Kendra Scott, another self-made billionaire um, from Austin with her jewelry line. So really, you know, just we're sticking to it right now. I know I'm, I'm afraid to let our uh, significant others start a podcast because they might uh, they might very well uh, one up or or billion up us. <laughs> so in uh, in in 2013, Blakely explained that her ambition is to design the world's most comfortable high heel shoe prior to retirement. So I'm sure that that's still uh, in progress and 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 potentially it's already been designed. I, I unfortunately don't know a lot about, uh, high heel shoes. <laughs> That's cool. So yeah, yeah. Like again, um, you know, we've talked in past, past episodes about people expanding and really, you know, getting into other, other places, other products outside of that original one. So to hear that Spanx went into, to high heel shoes is, is cool. Right. And now I mentioned that as of today, she's worth just North of, uh, you know, $1.2 billion, but, I want to dive into what she's done differently in order to grow this company. And there's actually been a lot of news about Spanx recently that's uh, it's kind of fun to share, and I'm, I'm excited to share that with you. So this first point is one that has changed almost overnight. So the first, the first thing that she did, which is actually quite similar to, to Zoho's philosophy, is she took no outside investments and owns 100% of the company 
uh, up until, well, I was going to say today, but it's really up until a couple of weeks ago, and I'll, I'll explain that. Now, she attributes part of her, the success uh, of Spanx to the fact that she didn't take any of this outside funding. She started with $5,000, and it was profitable from the very beginning. Uh, and that's interesting because it's a departure of some of the philosophies we see today of some of these big companies who are actually losing money but valued very high. I, the one that comes to mind is Uber. I remember seeing in the news many times that they're still not profitable, but they they base a lot of their value on you know the number of users and transactions, et cetera. And as Sarah says, you know, a lot of people want to start big and think big and oftentimes get ahead of themselves. That can end wildly successful, but it can also cause a lot of problems. And you dilute yourself down and you have people you're answering to with when you're not producing a profit. And she avoided that from the very beginning. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. Um, you know, I think in today's world, there's a, a, a really popular um, mindset of, you know, fake it till you make it and like, you know, just expand and get users and try to just get there as quickly as possible, no matter what the the books are saying. Um, when, you know, maybe you should save it till you make it like, uh, like she, she did here and really just, uh, own it yourself and, and put what you can into it and grow it, um, from the ground up. And, you know, you get to own every aspect of it and similar to Zoho, you know, we profitable from, from the beginning and don't answer to investors. And it's allowed us to make um, our own decisions and not, you know, answer to anyone. And I think she really, and as we'll learn, prides herself on following her gut on a lot of these things. And following her gut is kind of what led her to to the recent sale of the majority stake of Spanx. So as I said, recently, uh, global investment serve Blackstone is buying the majority stake of Spanx for approximately $1.2 billion. And Blakely said following the sale that over the years, many companies have offered to buy Spanx, but by quote, operating by my gut, she never found the right partner until she began working with the all women team at Blackstone Growth. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this sale and what it what, what she's done since that sale a little bit later. But uh, you know, I do think it's important, as she said, waiting for the right partner. And she still owns a stake in the company, but I would imagine that many of the the, the offers that came uh, to buy Spanx were from men or uh, male dominated teams. And for a, a brand that has such a close identity to you know female empowerment and female confidence. I can imagine how important it was for her to find a, an investment team a part to partner with that that embodied those qualities in in the the actual you know financial backers. Yeah, not just her and I assume, you know, knowing her customers, she knew it would be important to them as well. And so she didn't want to um, do anything that was, you know, not genuine to to her or to to her customer base. Right. Now the next thing is something that I feel like a lot of young entrepreneurs sometimes don't even consider, which is, you know, Sarah looked at evolving things we know rather than inventing something completely new. And I feel like as uh, an executive entrepreneur, we're always trying to find the new thing that nobody has ever done rather than looking at what's already there and just figuring out a way to innovate on that. So, you know, more recently, one of the things that she's doing is she's uh, inventing a, a fitted men's undershirt for men to wear, right? We've men have had undershirts for you know I don't know how many years, but uh, the, the the idea of applying that Spanx sort of technology, if you will, uh, to men is uh, is starting to take off. And as she says, I pay attention to the things that that haven't evolved and ask myself why. I ask these questions all day, every day. I could be looking at a table and be like, why is the table like that? 
And when was the table first created? Is that the actual best design for this table or could there be something different? And I love that idea of exploring what's around you and really looking for opportunity, opportunity to innovate, opportunity to grow, et cetera. Yeah. Seeing opportunity is such a critical thinking way of looking at the world too, of just not accepting anything for what it is. It's like, how can I make it better? Um, you know, we hear that time and time again through, through people we profile on the show. Yep. Now this, this thing that I want to cover next is something that maybe sounds obvious and we talk about a lot, but I don't think it's actually practiced very often, which is, uh, embracing failure, right? She, a key tenet of, of Blakely's leadership style is admitting her mistakes and giving her employees room to do the same. She even schedules, quote unquote, oops meetings at Spanx where employees stand up and say how they messed up or, or talk about a mistake that they made. And they usually turn it into kind of a funny story. And as she says, if you can create a culture where your employees are not terrified to fail or make a mistake, then they're going to be highly productive and more innovative. I'm curious about the things that hold power over us. And one is fear of embarrassment. And we all have that. But if I embarrass myself, then it loses its power over me. And I love that. We saw that it, with our, our story on Ingvar Komprod and uh, about how he also embraces failure, saying only a sleeping person makes no mistakes. And I think a lot of us think that we, we'd like to approach things that way, embracing failure. But I, I do feel that, especially at larger companies, failures is definitely something that can be embarrassing, fear of being reprimanded. You know, it's not looked at as as sometimes a goal, which you know we saw with IKEA, which is, hey, how fast can you fail so that we can take something out of that? Yeah, I love that philosophy because, um, you know, like you kind of you know hinted at when you when people are afraid to fail, then they're afraid to try things, and then you don't get um, good ideas because you're afraid that you know maybe it sounds dumb or it's embarrassing to say this or try this new way of of doing something, and you don't get innovation that way. And I think she's double down on this. And I just mentioned, you know, sharing her embarrassing stories with her, her employees, but she's also using this outward vulnerability to connect with her customers. So she's open about her process with her customers and shares intimate details about her life as a wife and a mother of four on Instagram. And as she says, "I, I love the idea of CEOs showing vulnerabilities and their ups and downs. I don't feel I need to put on a facade to be taken seriously as a leader. When I started Spanx, instead of talking at my customer, I wanted to talk to them. And I felt like other companies were like, you know, we need to be perfect and you need to be seen as the authority figure. And that's how we're going to sell the product. But they really weren't talking to me and I I didn't necessarily trust them. Instead, I made myself vulnerable and I was like, hey, I'm one of you. Here's what it does for me. This is why it works. I used my own butt in the before and after picture. And I felt like customers as a result, really became connected and loyal. And I do think that's really interesting when you, you create this brand, especially that, that, that is all about connecting to female confidence. And, and when you're connecting to a brand of confidence, I think you have to also connect it to your vulnerabilities and your, and your insecurities. And I think a woman or any person can see a CEO of a company being vulnerable and and talking about why they made this to help them feel better and feel more confident really helps you connect more to to more than just the product but to the brand itself. Yeah, it's just it's that human connection that we all want and, and need and it's that desire also for being seen as authentic. We want to see authentic people and you know, it's we've talked about this time and time again. It's not something that you can just turn on and off. Like it has to be really 
part of who you are and something that you you know really put into the company like from the jump. So uh, just another example here. Right. Now, switching gears a little bit, I want to rewind to something that I mentioned early on in her history, which was her moonlighting as a stand-up comedian. Because one of the things Sarah does in the company is she puts an emphasis on humor. At Spanx, new employees go through a training boot camp, and one of the mandatory activities is to do stand-up comedy. And she does this because it helps employees let go of their fears, loosen up, and use humor humor when selling Spanx products. Um, as she says, I don't subscribe to the fact that you have to act serious to be taken seriously. When I started, I wrote, don't worry, we've got your butt covered right on the package. I named my company Spanx, which made people laugh. And all of a sudden you had celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow and Julia Roberts flashing their Spanx on red carpets saying, hey, I'm wearing Spanx. And as she said, I think it's because I chose to do humor and people wanted to participate in that. When I cold called to sell fax machines door to door, I learned very quickly that if I can make somebody laugh or smile, I'd get another 30 seconds before they'd slam the door in my face. <laughs> yeah, it's really like being in on the joke and you know calling that out right away. And actually, Aruna reminds me, a few years ago, uh, our team, we did um, you know a, a campaign around using humor in sales. And we actually worked with the, uh, a stand-up comedian who also does uh, you know sales trainings with with uh, salespeople about how to use humor in your sales interactions. And um, I think it's a great, it's a great aspect. And, you know, now tying this back up into sort of our, our whole mantra in business unusual is Sarah really doesn't believe in following the rules. And a prime example is, is when her product wasn't visible or in a visible space at Neiman Marcus, what did she do? Well, <laughs> she took matters into her own hands. Uh, as she says, I realized that my product was in the sleepiest part of the department store. It was in the back corner and nobody was really going there. So immediately she went and she bought uh, envelope dividers, put Spanx in them, and ran around Neiman Marcus and put them at every register so that by the time somebody figured out that no one had approved this product positioning, uh, they were being bought up. And so nobody else wanted to disapprove it. It was so successful. Then Neiman, the head of Neiman Marcus was like, whatever this girl's doing, let's just keep doing it. Wow. Just the, <laughs> it's amazing just to hear like these little stories about, uh, you know, what you do at the beginning to really just get your product into people's hands. And it just takes so much, so much courage and, and guts to really do that. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love that we always see this sort of hustler's mentality throughout the process for a lot of these, these executives and entrepreneurs. And I think, that's one of those consistent character traits that that we see over and over again for these these you know super successful people. Now that pretty much wraps up our our story with Sarah. But I want to I, I did tease that there was something else I wanted to mention about the sale of the majority stake of Spanx to the Blackstone Investment Group. And just recently, I, I believe it was earlier this week, Sarah celebrated the sale with a big party at Spanx Spanx headquarters with all the employees. And as part of that party, and you can watch this on Instagram, she posted it. At one point in the party, she's talking to everybody, giving sort of a speech, celebrating, acknowledging the people that came before her family and stuff, and you know, very important people in her life. And she started spinning a globe and she says, you know, why am I spinning this globe? And at that point, she announced that every employee at Spanx would receive two first class plane tickets to anywhere in the world as part of this celebration. And so of course the crowd erupts and people start crying and everybody's excited. And, uh, and then as the excitement started wearing down, she said, well, you know, 
you guys might want to go eat at a nice place or stay at a fancy hotel. And so at, what I'm going to do is I'm also giving every single employee $10,000 cash to spend however they want. And of course, the same thing happened, eruption, tears, celebration. Uh, but I think that's so important and it's so fun that she's sharing this success with her employees. You know, they, she doesn't necessarily owe them anything uh, directly. And, and, but what she's doing is obviously very generous and it's just, it's just fun to see these people so indoctrinated and, and in, into the brand as an employee, because that that's how, you know, you have a successful company when your employees love what they do. They love the company, they love the brand. And, and part of that is just, you know, extending your wins to every single employee as well. Yeah. It really puts a smile on your face just to hear that story. Cause I think we've become so just kind of, you know, desensitized to hearing about billionaires who treat their employees terribly. And, you know, there's story after story about, um, these companies that have just risen to the top and they don't, they don't really like extend that love to the people that make their company what it is. Uh, but to hear something different like this is really, really cool. And actually to make the tie into, um, her original, uh, launch the product when Oprah got onto it, it, this story reminds me of when Oprah used to do her favorite things, uh, episodes when, um, she would just give all the audience those like the cars. These, yeah. The cars, the Christmas gifts and things like that. So it's a cool little tie in there that made me think of that. Yeah. So, you know, before I let you guys go, uh, I just want to summarize a couple of the, uh, of the points here, uh, that hopefully you can apply, you know, to your own, to your own business. Uh, you know, one of them is explore ways that you can grow the business without taking outside funding until you are absolutely ready or you absolutely need to, because it allows you to be flexible and, and, and really do the things that you're passionate about. Look at potentially innovating things that already exist rather than having to come up with a new idea every time. Uh, really make it a point to embrace failure, both within yourself and within your company, because that's that's how the best ideas come forth. And part of that is being vulnerable, both with your employees and with your customers. Share your mistakes, share your falls with your customers, but also share your successes. Don't be afraid to be funny in the workplace, because that's uh, always going to translate into better ideas. And you know, in the workplace, people are more willing to share, but it's also going to make you more. It's going to make you easier to connect with for your customers. And lastly, don't be afraid to break the rules. And if you can, give everyone $10,000. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And two first-class plane tickets anywhere in the world. We'll take it. Business Unusual is brought to you by Zoho, an enterprise platform that adapts to your company. From sales, marketing, and customer support to finance, human resources, and a low-code developer platform, Zoho software solutions address virtually every area of business. Go to zoho.com slash enterprise today and discover a refreshingly different way of doing business.